You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and the Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Erica Ramos. Uh, she's the Director and Head of Clinical and Product Development at Geisinger. And uh, Geisinger is a large and innovative health service organization. Uh, they serve more than one and a half million patients in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. The system includes 13 hospital campuses and about 600,000 member health plan, uh, two research centers, and uh, the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. So a uh, large entity, and uh, Erica, I'm really glad to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good, good. So I, I saw in my notes that uh, Geisinger is um, a project that I believe is called MyCode, where they're going to be sequencing the DNA, or they are sequencing the DNA of uh, a large number of people. Is that? Can you tell me about the project? Yeah, absolutely. So MyCode originally started as Geisinger's biobank, and that was back around 2007. Um, and then starting in 2014, uh, Geisinger began a collaboration with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals to sequence the biobank, and that's to perform whole exome sequencing, so looking at the about 2% of our DNA that we know codes for protein. Um, and since that time, uh, we've sequenced over 92,000 MyCode participants. Um, about a year after the exome sequencing started and the, our team started looking at results, not surprisingly, they were finding a lot of things that most clinicians especially would be kind of concerned about if they were seeing in their routine patients. So when we have genetic counselors and physicians who are looking at the data that's generated, obviously we're looking for some of the important things. And very quickly, there was a decision that was made that returning some of that research information to the Geisinger patient participants could be very important to their health. And so in 2015, the protocol was changed so that return of results for a defined set of conditions could be added to uh, provide results and information back to the patient participants. So uh, to date, gonna, uh, we've had- A couple of quick questions. Go ahead. Double sure. So, um, you know, I've seen the 23andMe and Ancestry and all that. You know, they, they say that they'll sequence your genetic code, et cetera. But from what I understand, it's a very limited sequencing. Are you guys sequencing the entire code, you know, whether it appears to be coding for proteins or not, of these 92,000 people? Yeah, definitely a different technology than what 23andMe and some others use. Um, mostly right now, when it comes to the types of genetic tests that most people hear about, um, the biggest picture way to look at your DNA is to do genome sequencing, and that's pretty much all of the coding or all of your DNA that we can um, sequence. And so that's you know all 
3 billion base pairs that make up your genetic code. Exome sequencing is kind of the next step down. And that's what we're doing with my code, which is doing gene, gene level sequencing. So you want to look at the entire gene for every gene that we know codes for proteins in the body. And the reason that we target those areas is, of course, proteins are what do a lot of the things that our body needs to have happen. Um, so most of the inherited disease that we know about falls within the exome. And so it makes sense to target that specific area. But that's only about 1% to 2% of the genome as a whole. So we're not getting everything that you'd get with genome sequencing. Something like 23andMe is what we call genome. Are you returning some of the findings to the people that you know contributed the DNA? What kind of um, information are you providing to them? So right now, we return results for 61 uh, genes, and those are... We, those are different genes and conditions that we've assessed as being potentially medically relevant for that participant right now. So we don't currently re return things like carrier status, where having a particular genetic change doesn't impact you, but might impact your children. Um, but these are variations where immediately they might change their medical management um, because that, of the presence of this particular genetic change. So those are going to be things like hereditary breast cancer, hereditary colon cancer, um, irregular heart rhythm conditions or arrhythmias, familial high cholesterol, things like that. And how do um, how did you get the DNA sequences in the first place? Were they you know, people specifically told you know we need them for research purposes or that we're going to return to you some actionable information? What was the reasoning? Yeah, so as I mentioned originally, it was the biobank. So when we decided to do the exome sequencing, we required that all of the participants be consented specifically for that genetic analysis. So anybody who's been sequenced for exome sequencing has been consented to do that sequencing. Then after that, when it was determined that we should start returning results for some of these, everybody who was going to get results returned was consented to get those results back. So everybody who has the potential to get a result back from the MyCode effort was consented for that purpose. So they know that there's a chance that they could get a result back from the genetic testing. Okay, got it. So what kind of uh, interesting things, things have been revealed by looking at all these uh, sequences? So, so far, we've had about 1,050 results returned to patient participants. Um, so that's about 2% of the population that was sequenced and is eligible to get return of results. Um, not surprisingly, about half of those fall into a set of conditions called the CDC Tier 1 conditions. This isn't really quite a clumping, but it's something that a lot of people will use to describe three particular disorders. That's hereditary breast and ovarian cancer that's caused by changes in the BRCA1 and 2 genes, um, familial hypercholesterolemia or familial high cholesterol, um, and then a condition called Lynch syndrome, which is tied to early onset colon cancer, uterine cancer, and other cancers. So we've returned over 500 results for those three conditions. But the important thing is that we've also returned more than 500 results for other types of conditions. And that includes things like connective tissue disorders, heart diseases, other types of hereditary cancers, adverse reactions to anesthesia, things along those lines. But the, hmm. So the, um, 
were all the uh, 92,000 sequences looked at and only certain ones returned after sifting and sorting? Or was this a random, you know, 1,050 out of the 92,000 and you just happen to see that many instances of uh, predisposition towards certain conditions? Great question. So we have 92,000 sequences that are available for research generally. About 64,000 of those uh, are participants who've been consented for return of results. So that we looked at all 64,000 exomes to try to find any genetic variants within our 61 genes that might be important for those participants. So we don't just pick and choose, we look at everybody who's eligible to get results returned back. Now I will say we have a very high bar for what will return back to patients um, because we don't want to be returning results that we can't act on right away. And so the way that we do that is by taking the sequence data from the research, we have experts who analyze that information and if they find a variant that they suspect might be related to disease, we actually send off a sample of DNA to a, a, a different clinical laboratory for them to confirm that that variant is there and to confirm that they agree that it's likely related to disease or what we call pathogenic. So there's multiple steps that happen between the research data and then what we return to patients and their physicians. Yeah, because, you know, saying that there were uh, 500 instances of a predisposition towards certain cancers or high cholesterol or other conditions, you know, that sounds like there was half the sample, but it really wasn't. It was out of 60 some odd thousand samples. So it's actually a yeah. much lower percentage. Yeah, it's about one to two percent of our sample population as a whole. Um, and that's about what we expect, both because these conditions are not incredibly common, and also because we do have that very high bar for what will return back for patients. We don't want to give them any results where they may be stuck in a situation of uncertainty, where they and their doctors don't know what to do next. We want to make sure that they have a clean path of action after they get the results back, and that they have um, the use of genetic counselor support and that testing can be offered to their family members um, and that the whole family can move forward together with confidence. But were people opting in for you to share what, you know, what the company believed was relevant to them or could they request to know everything that was found? So because this is all done under a research protocol, they, for the main part of our test, they can, we can only return results for the things that people consented for, which was highly actionable information. And we can't have people, the research protocol doesn't let people come to us and ask for other types of information or for us to interpret other types of information. But there are lots of other um, studies that, the, that are using the MyCode data. And so some of those studies individually, they might say, okay, we want to look at a set of patients that are at risk for cardiomyopathy, enlarged heart muscle, or long QT syndrome, which is another heart disorder. And they may look and say, okay, can you tell us what patients have that type of history? And then can we look, can we, you know, work with that set of patients and invite them to participate in sort of a sub-study of the general MyCode effort? And there are lots of these studies going on. So we have people um, across Geisinger looking at all sorts of different types of studies and using the MyCode data for other types of research projects. 
but those are going to be smaller subsets of the whole 64,000 or 92,000. So what's the, what's the goal of the project? I mean, what have you learned so far that maybe was surprising or interesting and what's the goal? So the first goal was just to figure out, you know, again, part of this was happening even before we decided to return results. So it was really just to see what do exomes look like in a large population. Um, there have not been a lot of studies that have the type of numbers that we have and have really enabled just your average patient to enroll and get some of this information back. So we're looking at a lot of things. We're looking at how people respond to these types of results, which is something that we've looked at quite a bit when people have a family history of disease or they might have a specific indication to look for these conditions, but not just because they wanted to, they were curious or not just because they wanted more information um, or they wanted to participate in research. We look at how this information is delivered. So we're testing some inter interesting technologies like chatbots to help patients understand genetic information and to help them share this information with their family members. And one of our big areas of focus is around how we enable our primary care physicians and the treating physicians for these individuals to use this information in a seamless way in their care. And so we have a huge collaboration with the genetic counselors across Geisinger and with a lot of our primary care physicians. More than 300 different primary care physicians have had patients who've gotten results. And we've worked with them to develop good educational materials um, and a strong collaboration with our genetic counselors so that these patients know what to do next. Well, what's been the, uh, the feedback, you know, letting people know about certain conditions? So far, it's been very positive. Um, we are just finishing up uh, analyzing some data about our 500 or so patients who have either the BRCA1 and 2 changes, the familial high cholesterol, or Lynch syndrome. And what we're finding is a very high rate of compliance with screening. So when we say, hey, you have this risk for breast cancer, go get an MRI once a year instead of just a mammogram, somewhere between 60 and 80% of the patients are going out and doing that. They're getting their colonoscopies. They're starting on statins if they're at risk for high cholesterol. And so we're seeing a much higher rate of uh, changes to what they would have done if they hadn't known about these conditions. We're also learning a lot about what this looks like in terms of delivery results. What do you mean delivery results? Well, when you send, so, you know, the typical way of getting genetic testing in most hospital systems is that somebody's identified as high risk because of their personal or family history, and then they get referred to a genetic counselor. That genetic counselor then works with them, orders the test, and helps the physician coordinate care moving forward. So what we're doing here is a little bit different because oftentimes those people are getting referred from specialists. And now we're working in a primary care setting, and that's really a, a pretty critical difference since primary care doctors and specialists have very different ways of running their clinics and of seeing patients. You know, we all hear that primary care physicians are being put in situations where they have to see 40 or 50 patients a day just because um, of getting billing and reimbursement and everything else. So what we're focused on is how do we make genetics and genomics accessible to the primary care physician and with support from genetic counselors, enable them to manage their patients over time. 
um, so that they can really be in control and start learning more about how to take care of those patients. Since that's really going to be what has to happen as you know, genetics becomes more and more common in lots of different areas. Are you looking at the, well, not you, but are they looking at the, um, the epigenetic changes at the time of the sequencing? Are they taking a snapshot at least, or is that not looked at? So we're not looking at, we're not doing any testing right now that would reveal epigenetics, epigenetic variation to the best of my knowledge. Oh, do, is there any thought to add it in later on, or is it just not seen as relevant right now? Um, you know, I don't know if that's something that's been discussed, um, if that's a long-term plan. If, if it was something that was in, of interest from our researchers, um, it's certainly something that could be looked at over time. Okay. And what about the, the diversity and the number of uh, sequences that you have? Is, I guess there's plans to probably expand it and uh, include other populations as well? Yeah. So the MyCode uh, sequencing the MyCode uh, research effort is limited to patients who are part of the Geisinger network and then also our Atlanticare group in New Jersey. So those are going to be the two populations who are part of the core MyCode initiative. Um, and not surprisingly, in Pen central Pennsylvania, we do have a predominantly um, European background, a European population. Um, we do have a fairly high Hispanic population. Um, and we do have a more diverse population, particularly in the Atlantic care group. So certainly that's a goal as with, I think, most of these big sequencing efforts to really move outside of the predominantly European groups and really start to learn what these types of uh, sequences look like in other diverse populations. And I don't know, maybe this is too detailed, but where, where is the, uh, the sequence taken from? Is it blood that's looked at? Is it skin? Like, where is the... Uh the DNA taken from, and does it vary depending on where you sample it on someone? So the blood, the MyCode participants generally participate by giving a blood sample. Um, that's often done when they go to get other blood tests done through their physician. So when you're enrolled in a My, as a MyCode patient, if you go to get blood drawn, they'll take an extra tube and send that to the MyCode biobank. Um, at the biobank, they'll extract the DNA, and we send DNA for exome sequencing in this case. And DNA extracted okay. from blood is the common place to do testing. All of the cells in your body should be almost 100% identical from the per perspective of the genetic code. There are some small exceptions to that, uh, but generally you should be able to get the same exome or the same genome from every cell in your body. Um, you know, again, with a handful of exceptions. Okay, all right, very good. Well, so what's what's in store for the next uh, year or so with Geisinger? What's next? So um, earlier, it, well, now and now and now it's last year. Um, in July of 2018, we started offering clinical exome sequencing without enrolling in the MyCode uh, research effort. So people can do both, but in two of our clinics right now, our health plan is helping us to run a study looking at. Um, how we can roll population exome sequencing out into the general population. So we've been doing that now for a little over six months, um, and that's an ongoing effort. The other thing, and this is the part of the group that I work with, is that as health systems have started hearing more about the impact of the MyCode program, 
they're, they've become more and more interested to learn how to implement the approach in their own systems and, how, and want to use it to benefit their patients. Um, and since Geisinger is a learning health system and we want to share what we've learned, um, Geisinger formed a group that I'm part of called the Geisinger National Precision Health Team. And our group is really sort of, we consider ourselves to be the external face of Geisinger. So we're looking outside of Geisinger at other health systems and other groups who are looking to sequence large populations and trying to figure out how we can support their efforts and how we can help them launch these types of programs and learn from our experience. All right. Well, very good. So um, people that live in what Pennsylvania and New Jersey can become part of Geisinger or if they're outside of that area, can they become part of Geisinger? Yeah. So, um, you know, certainly we're always open to new patients if they're, if their uh, insurance covers Geisinger or if they're interested in getting their care at Geisinger. And if you are a Geisinger patient, you're eligible for participation in the MyCode project, or I should say Atlanticare as well. Right. How can people find out more about Geisinger and the MyCode project as well? So we do have a MyCode website, um, and people can go there. Um, it's geisinger.org slash precision dash health slash MyCode. So a little unwieldy, but if they search for Geisinger MyCode online, they'll be able to find us quickly. That talks a little bit about the enrollment process. Um, what participation means, so what they have to do to become a participant. And it also has a lot of stories from some of our other MyCode participants who've learned different things or who just decided that it was important for them to participate in research and help to contribute to the knowledge that we could generate. Um, so not every story is about a positive result or something that became life-changing, but I think when people worry about, you know, what does it mean to participate in research and you know, should I be concerned about participating in your research? These are some good things to think about and to learn about. Okay. Right, very good. Well, Erica, thanks for coming on the call. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.